The following audio is from the King's Chapel. You can find out more about our church at thekingschapel.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the King's Chapel. If you didn't get a chance to on your way in, there are sermon outlines at the doors that you can pick up to follow along with uh, this morning's sermon. As you just saw, we are in the book of Acts again. So if you have a Bible with you, um, you can turn to Acts chapter 25. If you don't and you just have your phone with you and you promise not to get distracted, you can go to your Bible app and uh, go to Acts 25. And today, as you know probably well, is October 31st, which is actually, it's been a rare occurrence that October 31st has been on a Sunday. Um, if you didn't know, the last time that it happened on a Sunday was uh, 2010, I think was the last time. And um, this is a significant date for a number of reasons. Some of you may have reasons that come to your mind. You say, oh, it's Halloween. It's the day I, I dress up and do creepy stuff or whatever it is. But if you grew up in my household, you would know that some 1,500 years ago, in response to some of the, the pagan practices and, and uh, worship in places like Ireland, no offense to our Irish friends here, uh, the church decided they would do this thing called All Saints Day on November 1st and All Saints Eve on the evening before where they would celebrate and remember great saints and martyrs, uh, people like the apostles, people like we, we read about in the book of Acts. So if you can believe this, when I was a, a child, this is what we would celebrate. I don't even know that I was that aware that Halloween was a thing. It was like All Saints Eve is coming where you get to dress up as your favorite Bible character, right? <laughs> and uh, in my case, I really stretched that to dress up as my favorite Christian, and so it would be Zorro pretty much every year. Uh, I mean, it's the perfect combo. Mask, mustache, sword. That's a boy's dream, right? Uh, we would celebrate that All Saints Eve, and uh, some of you know that, Hallows Eve, and then uh, a about a thousand years after that tradition was established, there was this uh, day of October 31st in which Martin Luther in Wittenberg nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of that church, at least according to the, the legends, and began the Protestant Reformation, and I believe it was 1517. Um, and that really ushered in a new era in the church, a return to the doctrines of grace, a reliance on scripture as our authority, and salvation by faith alone through Jesus Christ alone and not, uh, not a faith based on works. So there's a lot going on on October 31st, isn't there? And uh, not only that, but now we have a chili cook-off being added on top of that and bring on the chaos, right? The question that inevitably comes to our mind on days like this, and maybe these are questions that you've long settled in your mind, but, but the question for Christians who are thoughtful about this is, is how should I as a Christian participate in this kind of day, or should I just not? You know, there are things about it, obviously some influences that are, are very, you know, mixed in this day, and some very dark. So we maybe begin to wonder, how should I as a Christian handle this? And, and I'll be really direct, and, and this is a rhetorical question, so don't answer it out loud, but should my family or should I as a follower of Jesus participate in, in all this Halloween stuff? And so you at your seat already have a gut reaction to that. It's like, duh, it's the best. Or it's like, no way, uh, it's evil. Whatever your reaction is, this is what I would encourage you to do. Ask that question to yourself thoughtfully and prayerfully and seek to honor God in whatever decision you make. Now, I'm not going to answer that question for you this morning because that, that's not the, uh, the point of today's sermon. Aren't you relieved? But if you're curious how to make any of these decisions, if you're not sure, 
about certain things, about how should Christians handle this or that or, or whatever issue it is, I'd encourage you to go back in, in our sermons to February 14th of this year, where on a snow day to an empty room, we preached a sermon called Should Christians Blank? Should Christians Blank? And what we walked through was five practical questions based on scripture to help you answer some of those questions that are difficult for you. So you might write that down and you might just Google Mark Jeske, Should Christians, and it'll come up or, or look it up on our podcasts on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or YouTube, whatever your, your mode of choice is. But I think it'd be really helpful, not just for days like today, but for, for uh, many different questions, if you would give that a, a listen. I think it'd be helpful to you. But the bottom line that I communicated then and that I will reiterate this morning is really simple. If we're unsure what to do in life in general, we can ask God for wisdom. And scripture says that when we ask him for wisdom, he gives it without reproach. He has no hesitation about giving us wisdom as we ask him. And, his, and the other thing we could do is simply ask this one question. God, can I do this to your glory? Can I do this to your glory or not? We could ask that about pretty much anything in life. The Apostle Paul, he discusses this type of topic frequently in his letters to the churches. And his bottom line concern is this. Whether you eat this or don't, whether you celebrate this or not, whatever decision is facing you where you're not sure, determine to make your prevailing concern not legalism, not license to do whatever you want, but love. Love for God and love for your neighbor. Romans 14.5, it says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, that of many, that they may be saved. Paul is not saying, be a people pleaser for the sake of pleasing others. No, no, no. He's saying, be someone who is able to love others, that they might come to know Jesus and be saved. So here's my simple challenge to you this morning, and then we'll, then we'll move on from this. How will you and your family honor God and love your neighbor today on October 31st? And I'll leave it to you to sort that out before the Lord and perhaps talk it through with some believers you love and respect. And, and like I said, some of you have already settled that question in your mind long ago, but some of you are just wrestling with it this year. And so I ask you to consider, how would I honor God and love my neighbor today? Now, back to Acts 25, the endless beatdown of the Apostle Paul. We're continuing in that. If you saw the sermon title this week, maybe you weren't that excited to come to church because it's strengthened through suffering, strengthened through suffering. And if you haven't been with us in Acts, what we've seen over the last several chapters and will continue to see is, is that the Apostle Paul has been preaching Jesus. He's been talking about the resurrection of the dead and the hope that's been fulfilled. The hope of the Old Testament scriptures pointing to this coming Messiah. And he's saying, Jesus is it. And by believing in him, you can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter. The cross was sufficient for you. The resurrection has made a way. And so he's preaching this that you can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And, and there are some, in, and in Jerusalem especially, that hate Jesus. 
And so as a result of that, they hate Paul because of what he's been preaching. So, so he's been beaten up, right? He's been arrested, falsely accused of petty things he didn't do, threatened with murder, imprisoned many times, put through courtroom trial after trial. And, and here's what's so amazing about this. And we've been able to step back and see, we've seen how God has used even these terrible circumstances to bring about his glory. How, how as Paul's being pressed down and crushed, that it doesn't actually crush him, but he's actually being elevated to speak the gospel and to speak truth before new audiences over and over again. We, we've seen that he's, uh, he's preached to ordinary people in the streets. Then he's, he's preached to the, the supreme court of the land, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He's been pulled before a governor. Last week we looked at that in a passage uh, uh, about a governor. We'll see this week that he gets to speak to another governor about Jesus. And, and then we'll get into next week. He gets to share the gospel with a king and eventually to go to the seat of the whole Roman Empire in Rome and continue to preach about Jesus. And, and so it's been amazing to see how God has been at work behind the scenes, even through ordinary, uh, even pagan believers at times to bring about his purposes. It's been really amazing to see how God accomplishes great things through Paul. And so we glorify God for that. But despite all that God has planned for Paul, despite all the amazing things we've seen God do in his ministry, we can see that big picture. But Paul, can we be honest, has gone through a lot of suffering, a lot of trials. And so maybe he can look back and see, God, I know you've been faithful, but in the moment, Paul is walking through some serious trouble and trials. And some of you this morning, and some of you watching online, you are going through trials right now. Some literally. Like you're in trials right now, literally. Some figuratively. And it can be so tempting when we read scriptures and to read about Paul and, and to, to just have this very far off view of it. Like he's an apostle. He's special. He, he's able to endure this stuff, no problem. And to forget that he is an ordinary man in a physical body, just like us, with an ordinary mind, dealing with the same kinds of weaknesses. Think about what he's enduring and see if you can put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. Realize that he's just a simple man like us with a family that he is not able to see for years on end because of these imprisonments. He's someone who had friends all over the world. We see that in his letters, this hope that he can be with them again, and yet he's been separated from them for long periods of time, and he's lost many friends along the way. No doubt, Paul is dealing with an aging body after getting beat up a lot of times. You think about the aches and pains you have from just sleeping in your bed every night. Like, he has that times 100 through what he's been through. Bouts of loneliness, sickness, seasons of doubt, discouragement, and no doubt spiritual opposition. Do you think Paul had some spiritual opposition? I'm sure he did. And as we walk through this chapter, what I want us to do is not just to, to have a far view of it, but to see that as Paul goes through suffering and trials, the ways in which we go through the same things, we may experience the same things in our lives, and, and then we'll consider why. Why might God be allowing this to happen in our lives? But we'll see how God uses even the worst of circumstances, yes, to make Paul more effective, to preach the gospel in new contexts, but we'll also see how God strengthens Paul, how God matures Paul. And even through pruning, and we'll talk about that word towards the end, even through pruning Paul's life and, and making some, some tough changes to Paul's life, how it is ultimately for Paul's good and for God's glory as Christ's name is more and more magnified in 
the lives of the people around Paul. And so in this chapter alone, what we're going to see is Paul walk through four different kinds of trials, and this is what will be on your outline. The first kind of trial that we'll see him walk through is, number one, delayed hope. Delayed hope. Proverbs, you'll remember, says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And some of you have dealt with that. Hope deferred, a hope that is not satisfied and we're waiting for, makes us feel sick at heart. And Paul, we've seen last week, was on trial with his governor Felix, found guilty of nothing, and yet here's what Felix does. Governor Felix is not willing to be convinced of anything by Paul, and being a people pleaser and trying to appease the Jewish people, he leaves Paul in prison for how long? Y'all remember? Two years. We just think Paul's life just moves chapter after chapter, next thing after next thing. No, two years. Two years in prison, despite not being convicted of any crime. And after two years of being in prison, Felix, the governor, is relieved of his duties as governor of Caesarea. So you would think this would be a great time to let Paul go, right? In the transition, presidential pardon style, let him go. But no, even after leaving office, he'd rather please people than do what's right. And so it says this in verse 27 of chapter 24. It says, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So now we go from Governor Felix to Governor Festus, if you can keep up with these amazing names. The players change, but Paul stays in prison. Paul, who spent his entire life in ministry, traveling from place to place, meeting with people, uh, enjoying fellowship with other believers, planting churches, this Paul, who's been told by the Lord that he is going to go testify about Jesus in Rome, is completely stuck, just waiting. Think about the most dynamic, active people you know. Maybe it's you, left waiting, locked up due to governmental incompetence or bureaucratic nonsense, whatever the reason, Paul is just stuck. Now, I I don't know what would would be going through Paul's mind over the course of 700 plus days sitting in a prison, but I wonder what he must have been thinking and feeling. What he must have been thinking and feeling even about God. Lord, how can I be your preacher if I'm in chains? Lord, what about your promises to me? Where are you? What about what you told me that I would be going to Rome to be your witness? Where are you, Lord? Did I not hear you correctly? Did I miss your instruction? Am I no longer useful to you? Lonely, frustrated, waiting. Some of you are waiting on the Lord right now. You've been waiting. And you don't know when he's going to fulfill his word to you. You don't know when he's going to come through in your circumstances, but you just feel like you're in a season of endless waiting and you don't know how long. And that can be really hard. Maybe you don't understand it. And the question facing us this morning and the question that was facing Paul was this, will you trust the Lord today? Will you trust him as you wait The second trial we see Paul walk through is this false accusation. False accusation. Verse 1 of chapter 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So picture this with me. There is a new governor in town. It's, It's funny that we're talking about this right around a governmental election here in Virginia. But imagine this new governor has come into office. He's three days into the job. He's setting up his desk in enrichment, so to speak. And he's put out his world's best governor mug on the desk and his picture of his family 
and he's settling in to do his job when already he's hearing a knock on the door and he looks up and there is a line of religious Jewish leaders and priests waiting to talk to him about this guy, Paul. Why? And they don't want to just talk about Paul. They want to accuse Paul again and they want to get Paul back in court, back on the docket immediately with the new governor. Verse two, and the chief priests and principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. So he's not even there. He has no defense. He's just, they're just in Festus's office, banging on his door saying, here's what's wrong with Paul and we need to deal with him. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul. Did any of you know you can ask a favor against other people? I didn't know that. I'm going to try that sometime. Uh, as a favor against Paul, that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Think about this. The chief priests and the principal men, these are the religious leaders of the nation and this is what they're doing. How messed up is this? How wicked is is this? They are arranging a, a plot to murder Paul as he's traveling back to Jerusalem if they can get him transported back from Caesarea, 70 miles, to kill him on the way. We remember this from a couple weeks ago, but two years have passed and they still are plotting to murder Paul despite him being in prison and being rendered essentially ineffective. There's a new governor, new opportunity to have him tried, new opportunity to have him transferred, new opportunity to do what they had planned two years ago and murder him. Incredibly wicked. So the new governor, Festus, he, he looks at his calendar and, and, and he, it says this, Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea. So he sa- says, well, he's in Caesarea And I'm planning to go there in a few days, so let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove." I want you to know that, that they could not prove. So two weeks into this governor's new job, we see him in his first tribunal. He's sitting down to to receive this this prisoner. And we see Paul, who's been waiting and waiting, probably completely unaware that there was any kind of chance of him getting another court date. And he's been called back to court where he was two years prior in front of the governor of the land. This all sounds very familiar. And again, he's being lied about, persecuted, and brutally slandered. False accusations. Now, Think about your own lives. I hope that false accusations are not an everyday occurrence for you. Not something you deal with and have to wrestle with very often. I hope that's true. But for any of you who have experienced this, it's terrible. Terrible. Like we think about suffering harm, and that's one thing. But think about your your reputation being destroyed. Think about the reputation of your family being destroyed. False accusations can be incredibly devastating when they happen in any kind of the reality of our life. But did you know that we all deal with false accusations constantly? Scripture says that Satan, the enemy of God, is the accuser. And right now, some of you may be dealing with false accusations, not in a courtroom, but in your own mind, in your own life, Every day as Satan, the accuser, whispers to you lies, false accusations, things like this, that you don't matter to God, that you're worthless, that no one cares about you, that that you're irredeemable. 
that your marriage is, is beyond hope and beyond repair, that your children are a lost cause, that you're unfit for ministry, that those sins that you've confessed that, that you know have been long forgiven, no, not really. Not really. They're not forgiven. God hasn't forgiven your past. False accusations. Do you know what every one of those accusations is? A lie. A lie. Untrue. Satan is a vicious liar. And so don't give him a seat at your table. Don't allow him to have a voice in your life. Friends, Paul has learned something here that that we all need to learn. He has learned not to buckle under false accusation because he knows this. He knows to whom he belongs. He knows whose he is. And despite any accusation that could come against him, he knows that he is the Lord's. I want to read you an Old Testament passage from the prophet Zechariah. And, and here Zechariah is telling us about Joshua, the high priest of the land. And I want just to read this to you. And, and I want you to see yourselves in this. It says this in chapter 3 of Zechariah. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. So here's this priest standing before the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Listen to this. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the Lord clothed with filthy garments. Anyone ever feel like that? And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And where, the, where Satan was standing at the right hand accusing, it says this, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Friends, if you're in Christ, this is you. This is your story. And, and when we deal with false accusations coming our way about how we're not forgiven, how we're unworthy, how, how we're useless to the Lord, this is what has happened in the heavenly realm to you. If you believe in Christ, you have been made new. You are a new creation. You are clothed with pure vestments. You are washed white as snow. You are useful to him. And it doesn't matter what the accuser says. The Lord is rebuking him every day. And the angel of the Lord stands at your side to sustain you. And Paul knows this. Paul is alone in court. There's no one to come to his defense. He's dealing with lies and rumors that could ruin or end his life. And so think of that in the natural, what that would feel like, the pit in his stomach, the anxiety that he's feeling, and the frustration that must be rising up in him. Here we go again. And yet what we see in him is someone who has been through all of this before and is not shaken because he's learned that the Lord is with him, that the cross is enough, that his strength is not his own, but is from the Lord. The third trial we see Paul face here is number three, selfish manipulation. Selfish manipulation. Verse eight, Paul argued in his defense. So no lawyer, just Paul, which actually he's quite capable. It says, neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, listen to this once again, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Do you know how costly it is when people in power are more concerned with pleasing people than doing what is right. We see it again and again. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? 
No, no, Paul does not want that. Despite Paul having a sound defense and and nothing true being said about him, Festus sees this as an opportunity to to curry favor with the Jewish leadership, to set himself up for for some kind of social, political success as the new uh, governor. And despite being in the office for a couple weeks, he essentially says, look, I'll do this for you, and then you all will owe me uh, soon. You'll be able to pay me back soon. And and so Paul is being used by multiple people in this scenario. He's being used by the Jewish religious leaders. He's being used by Festus. He's been used by Felix. And and he is being used by multiple people for manipulative gain. And some of you have been there. Some of you deal with people every day that are are terribly manipulative. Some of you are manipulative. And and maybe this is just a a chance, a gentle conviction for you to repent, if that is your tendency, to be selfish, to try to twist things and work things to your advantage. Paul, through years of trial and testing, I want you to see the strength he has. He doesn't buckle under this. He doesn't wait for the next trial. Maybe this will all sort out. No, he is full of courage and conviction to stand. He's ready to respond. But Paul, verse 10, said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So this is the trump card politically or in the courtroom. Paul is a citizen of Rome and in, in certain kinds of cases, you can basically say, if this is not going to get resolved at the level of the magistrate, I am appealing to Caesar. And, and the way this worked was, this is rare, but if, if someone appealed to Caesar in this way, the magistrate would have to send him. So Festus, he's like, he, he did what? And he looks around at his council and he, he starts whispering with them, is, this, is he allowed to do this? What, what's, what's protocol here? It says, when he had conferred with his council, he answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Fourth trial we see that Paul faces here is number four, uncertain direction. Uncertain direction. You would think that after two plus years, Paul would finally see a path to Rome, a path to freedom, a path back to God's mission for his life. But no, what we see instead is more uncertainty, more indecision. Verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So the king of the region, at this point just a puppet king, kind of like the royal family, like not, not really any influence or power, and if you were obsessed with them, you need to move on. Um, <laughs> sorry, I offended someone for no reason. Okay, Agrippa, this puppet king of Judea, he comes to greet the new governor, and this Agrippa is, Agrippa, as you've maybe put together, he's the son of Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa just had James murdered in Jerusalem. Herod Agrippa persecuted Christians. This is the nephew of Herod Antipas who had a a role in crucifying Jesus. This Herod Antipas, his father was Herod the Great who you'll remember in the Christmas story was responsible for killing children and babies in Bethlehem because he was scared that a a king, a Messiah, would be coming for his throne. This is a messed up family. This is a a family that has always had a history of violence and, and in particular opposition to Jesus and his message. And despite Festus, seemingly already having decided to send Paul to Rome, he second guesses himself and he thinks, man, maybe it would be smart to bring the king into the mix. And so you see, he he has so little understanding of who Jesus is. Festus is completely incompetent to make these kinds of calls. So here's what he says, jumping down to verse 18. He's explaining the situation to King Agrippa. And he says, when the accusers stood up, they they brought no charges in his case of of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was 
dead, but Paul asserts to be alive. And then he says, essentially, I'm at a loss. I don't know how to decide this stuff. I invited him to go back to Jerusalem where they could maybe figure it out, but he refused to go and instead he appealed for a decision from the emperor. So I ordered to hold him until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa, the king, curious about all this, says to Festus, I'd like to see him. I'd like to see him myself. So Festus says, tomorrow. Tomorrow you will hear him. Think of this. Think of the uncertainty facing of Paul. Everything he's been going through, all these, these trials, waiting, wrestling against false accusation, all these different things. And here, Paul is, once again, in circumstances outside of his control completely. He thought he was on track, and then all of a sudden, this, this new character comes into the game. He's going to get tried again. It, the circumstances are spinning away from him once again, and his case is being made. His situation is being explained by Festus, this guy who apparently doesn't even know who Jesus is. This is not good for Paul. We know that God has a plan and a purpose for Paul, but from a human perspective, the direction seems very unclear. I think as we're in these chapters of Acts, I think the Lord has us here for a purpose because many of you are there right now in some of the trials that we just talked about. Maybe you're waiting. You feel like you've been waiting on the Lord for a long time. Maybe you're wrestling against false accusation every day and you're being driven to despair. Maybe you're in the midst of being selfishly manipulated or perhaps in continued uncertainty, seeing that ultimately you have no control over your circumstances and that's begun to, to create fear in you. And the question facing us this morning, it's really simple. Will you trust God? Will you trust God? We'll see next week that despite everything Paul is going through, that, that all of these trials are actually working to strengthen him, mature his character, lead him on a path of proclamation that he would have never thought possible. Tomorrow, Paul gets to meet with a king. And we'll see next week something so amazing about Paul. He wastes no time. He is ready to rock and roll to try to convince this king to believe in Jesus. It's amazing. It's amazing. Paul is ready. And I think it's easy for us to look at Paul's life, though, and wonder, with all these trials he's gone through, with all the suffering he's, he's been through, why? Like, why did Paul have to go through all of this? Why did he need to suffer in, all, in this way? And why do we suffer, too? Why do we walk through trials? And I wonder this morning, if you would consider with me that at times, the Lord allows us to go through trials for two reasons. For our good and for his glory. For our good and for his glory. In the spring of 2020, when many of us were stuck in our houses avoiding viruses or humans or friendship or whatever it was, if, if you could, maybe during that uh, phase of lockdown, you took up gardening. Was anyone in the gardening club there early on in pandemic days? No, just me? Okay, so I was in my backyard some uh, during that time and decided, you know what, I'm going to plant some things. Why not? And, and so I got really into it for like two days. And, um, but during those two days, I, was, I worked hard and I planted two apple trees in my backyard. Have any of you ever planted fruit trees? Well, I was very enthusiastic and so I planted these two apple trees and I loved them and I watered them and I spoke kindly to them every day. I encouraged them. <laughs> and so this year at the beginning of the summer, something amazing happened. They began to produce fruit they began to produce a few dozen apples. 
And I was so excited as, as I watched those little apples grow, those flowers turn into apples, and then the apples begin to grow. But as the weeks wore on, do you know what happened? All of them fell off. All of them. Before they were mature enough to eat. Do you know why? Because the branches were too immature and too weak to handle the fruit. In John 15, before Jesus is going to the cross, he says this to his disciples. He says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, listen to this, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 5, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God wants us to live lives that bear fruit. And what is fruitful living? This is what fruitful living is. It's walking ever closer with Jesus. Ever closer with Jesus. And others learning to do the same through you. That's bearing fruit. And when you have a, a beautiful plant or a fruit tree, one of the best things you can do for that plant so that it grows more fruit at the next harvest, so that it is strong enough, is to prune off the dead buds, to prune off the dead branches of the tree that are diseased or lifeless. And actually, this is really interesting. To make a plant strong, you cut off and prune off the branches that are growing inward. Think about that. The branches that are going inward, you cut away in favor of the branches growing outward. And so to do that, you literally take shears or clippers and you cut off the parts of the plant. And the result is that there is more growth in the future. And so it's, it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive, but pruning is necessary in order to experience growth. Some of you are going through a season of pruning right now. Right now. Like Paul, your life is full of challenge. It's full of trial, doubt, hardship, but the hope of the scripture is this, that God is using even these present circumstances, these trials in your life to shape you, to help you, to strengthen you, and like a, a good vine dresser, to tend to you so that you can begin to bear more fruit. In the midst of the pruning, some of you will feel like, God, I'm trying to abide in you. I'm doing my best, and it still feels like I'm just getting crushed. And I believe the word of the Lord to you this morning would be this, take heart. Wait on me. Hang in there. Even Paul, the great apostle, experiences pruning. I know pruning is not what you want to go through right now. Right? Like no one wants to go through that. But can I tell you to have a life that bears fruit, it is worth it. It is worth it. When you prune a branch, in some ways it hurts the branch, it hurts the plant, but it doesn't harm it. It does not harm it. And in the midst of the storm, as life begins to overwhelm us, as the things we put our security in begin to disappear, as unwelcome challenges weigh on us, remember, God is not punishing you, but he may be pruning you for your good and for his glory. It may hurt, but you will not be harmed. You can trust him. In the midst of your pruning, you can trust that as a loving vine dresser, he wants you to thrive. He loves you. And so what does pruning look like in your life? It, it may uh, mean cutting things out of your life, learning to trust him in certain areas of your life where you've been hanging on to all the control, like a, a relationships or a job or your children. Pruning might mean removing a sin habit that, that you already know just needs to go. 
It might mean removing a coping mechanism that has begun to, to become your place of abiding rather than abiding in Christ. Pruning may mean taking away certain relationships, as hard as that is, but certain relationships that are hindering your growth. It may mean cutting things out of your life and your schedule. If you are too busy to abide, your life needs pruning. Busyness does not equal fruitfulness. Busyness does not equal fruitfulness. And pruning hurts. But God's loving heart toward us is that we would become strong and mature as he prunes us that we might bear fruit. And here's the deal. As scary as pruning might be, there's two ways we can go about this. We can either be passively pruned and and go through life stubbornly doing things our own way and then it's kind of just going to happen to us. Or we can participate in the pruning. We can say, God, have your way in my life. God, I want you to have all of me have your way in my life. And I will tell you that you will grow at the rate of your obedience to the Lord. You will grow at the rate of your obedience. And I don't know what the Lord is cultivating in you this morning, but my prayer is that through waiting, he would grow in us endurance, patience, humility. Through false accusation, he would ground us deeper in truth. Through manipulation, he would give us courage and grow in us conviction. And through uncertainty, he would cultivate trust in him. As the band comes up, let's bow our heads to pray. Oh Lord, I thank you that you are with us in our trials, that you can redeem even our suffering to bear much fruit. And even as you were about to suffer greatly on the cross for us, Lord, you reminded us that that some of the trials that we face would be for our good and for our growth and for our glory, for your glory, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who bear much fruit. I pray that for anyone who is suffering and in trials right now, that they would not hear your word as dismissive uh, of your pain, of their pain or suffering, but rather, Lord, they would see in it that, that you are with them, that you care, that you can work greater purposes even in the midst of the trials. I pray we would take you at your word, that we would trust you this morning with our lives. Lord, we acknowledge that you are so good and worthy of our trust. Lord, we pray your blessing upon our church on this church, the King's Chapel this morning. If there's anyone who doesn't know you this morning, I pray that that today would be a simple day in which they turn, a day in which they look upon the cross and see that you paid it all for their sins. They look upon the empty tomb and see that they can have eternal life with you. Lord, I pray that, that today would be the day that the lost come home and be found in you. Lord, we love you. We commit the rest of this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen.